You're listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church, a relevant biblical community. For more information, visit houstonsfirst.org. It is an incredible honor to get to be here in this incredible house of worship today. I'm so thankful for your testimony and how God is using you, not just in Houston, but all over the world for his glory and honor. And I, I, I was somebody, I did plant a church in Las Vegas, Nevada, just about eight weeks ago, relocated to Atlanta, Georgia, still not to over leaving Las Vegas yet. Las Vegas will always be home for my family, having lived there for over two decades. But I want to begin today by bringing you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Las Vegas. Maybe you didn't know you had brothers and sisters in Christ in Las Vegas, but you do. God is alive and at work in that city and in cities like that all across North America. And in large part, that's happening because of your generosity. I know we just talked about an offering moment where you have an opportunity to give. But one of the ways that your church gives is you invest specifically through a mission offering in the organization that I get to lead now. That's Send Network. And I enunciate the D because if I say it too fast, it sounds like I'm president of Sin Network, and I used to be president of that one too, like a lot of you, I'm sure, before Jesus. But now with Sin Network, it's the largest church planning network in North America. Last year, I had the privilege of starting 745 new churches all across North America, Canada, the United States, and Puerto Rico. Uh, and that happens because of your generosity. When you give to a church, you don't give to a church, you give through a church, as an investment in the kingdom of God being expanded. And I stand here today to say a tremendous thank you to you on behalf of thousands of church planters all across North America. We currently have about 1,200 planters that are in our five-year funding matrix that we are funding, and that happens because you give. Out of 47,000 Southern Baptist churches, Houston's first gave the largest offering to church planting of any of the 47,000 churches in North America. So I'm here to say thank you. I wish I had time to introduce you to church planters and tell you the stories of what God is doing. But let me just say it simply. God is alive and at work in this world. And we are grateful for your generosity. All those planters are doing what they're doing. Their families are being cared for because of your generosity. And in a couple of weeks, you're going to kick off your mission offering emphasis again. Here's my challenge to you. Break last year's record. Like break last year's record. Just go above and beyond. You'll never regret investing in the kingdom of God. Uh, let me breathe one more word of prayer and then I want to jump into a text this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the incredible privilege to be in this place. I'm so thankful for Pastor Greg Mott and the way you use him here and the leadership team here. God, thank you for uh, this invitation that I've received to be able to come and stand in this pulpit. And God, I don't take it lightly. Lord, we want to hear from you today. God, I pray over this congregation that the message and the preaching would not be in persuasive words of wisdom, but that it would be a demonstration of your spirit and your power so that the faith of those who hear would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Prayer is, is what we do together. So just there in your own heart, before I begin to preach, I want you to just ask the Lord to speak to you today. And if you don't know exactly how to say that, just take the words of the old psalm that says, open my eyes that I may receive wonderful things from your law. So just in your own heart right now, ask God to open your eyes, to teach you from his word. 
Holy Spirit of God, we are desperate for you today. Have your way. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The very first church ever planted is what I want to talk to you about today. If you got your Bible, open it to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, we read the story of the first church ever planted. And when I say first church, I don't mean the first Baptist church or the first Methodist church. I mean like the OG. This is the original church, church number one. Every other church that's ever been planted, we find our roots here in this church. I, I get to lead an, an organization that is about church planting, and, and a lot of church planters, they, they get into a city, they begin to make disciples, and then at some point they have their grand opening, kind of their launch service when they go public. Before I read the text of Scripture, let me give you some background on this church. On their launch Sunday, grand opening, Simon Peter was assigned the task of preaching the gospel. So on Sunday number one, Simon Peter preached the gospel, and three thousand people became followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how you measure success in church planting here at Houston's First, but I would submit to you if 3,000 people become followers of Jesus on Sunday number one, that's a pretty good start. Amen? Like, I don't know about you, but I'd love to be a part of seeing a church plant launch and three, and I'm not talking about 3,000 people who filled out a card or raised their hand. I'm talking about 3,000 people who embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, surrendered the control of their lives, and began to radically live out the mission of Jesus in a very difficult place. They come back on Sunday number two, thinking, well, I'm sure we'll have some fall off from launch Sunday. They show up on Sunday number two, preach the gospel again. So many people get saved on Sunday number two, they can't count them all. So the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that they just counted the men on Sunday number two, and there were 5,000 men plus women and children. So get this, we're two weeks in to a brand new church and somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 new believers. You don't talk about some parking problems, right? <laughs> they had some space issues going on in the early church. If that's not enough, historians and scholars go on to tell us that this early church, within six months, had seen 100,000 people in Jerusalem become followers of Jesus Christ. You know the problem with the stuff we read in the Bible? We've read it so much that it's become so familiar to us that it's lost its sense of awe. Do you what I just said? In six months, a hundred thousand people had become followers of you do you believe god can still do that kind of stuff today i'm gonna give you another shot at that (laughs) because that was a terrible way to answer that question except for my man right here on the front who said amen loud let me give you a little bit of a insight into my background so the church that i planted in las vegas that god allowed us to be a part of birthing it was a multi-ethnic church. We had 54 languages spoken in our fellowship. So on Sunday, it looked like what heaven's going to look like. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Polynesian, everything in between. And the beauty of multiple cultures is some cultures worship louder than other cultures. And I've gotten used to being in a multi-ethnic church 
with loud culture. So I like a little talking back to me every once in a while. So I'll give you some prompts so that if you're uncomfortable, I'll lead you through this process together. But I'm about to ask you a question where I need you to respond. All right. So here we go. How many of you believe God can do that kind of stuff today? Listen, God is still God. The same God that was sitting on the throne in Acts chapter 2 is the same God who's sitting on the throne today. He never takes a day off. He never goes on vacation. Thank God in 2024, he's never up for election. God is sitting on the throne and doing what God does. The same God that did that in Acts chapter 2 is the same God who can do that today. The problem is we just don't expect God to do that anymore. How many of you left this morning and said, oh God, may today be the day 3,000 come to faith in Jesus Christ. We gotten so used to just doing Christianity. We've accepted for something, something far less than what we see modeled for us in the New Testament. Let me take it a step further. This group of people, within 40 years, the gospel had reached every corner of the known world. What if we could say 40 years from today, because of what God started right here this morning, mission's over. Every tribe, tongue, people, nation in the kingdom is done. There are 2 billion people who profess to be followers of Jesus in the world today. Every single one of us trace our faith back to this handful of believers in the first century in Acts chapter 1. When I learned that about these people, I began to ask some questions about them. What was it that enabled them to be so mightily used of God? (laughs) We're going to get there. You're right. (laughs) Because if you look at these people, there was nothing about them that was special. Sometimes we read about the people in the New Testament like they're super Christians with a cape and a mask. Like, there they go. But honestly, if you study these people, there was nothing about them that was extraordinary. As a matter of fact, if you were going to pick teams to change the world, you wouldn't have picked any of these people to be on your team. They had no money. They had no influence. They had no power. They had no authority. They didn't have experience. They never planted a church before. Most of them never preached a sermon before. And yet God used them to turn the world upside down. My friend J.D. Greer says, never has a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. I don't know about you, but that encourages me because I find myself in that category. Aren't you glad that we serve a God that for the sake of His glory and the expansion of His kingdom can take those of us that outside of His gifting and empowering, we really got nothing to offer that he can take our yes on the table and use that to literally turn the world upside down. Let's read the story, Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read a long text of Scripture, and then I'm going to unpack for us four characteristics that I believe enabled these people to be so mightily used of God. Now, here's, here's what I love about these characteristics. None of these characteristics that we're going to unpack are beyond our reach. We can grab them and apply them to our lives. And here's what I believe. When we apply these to our lives, we're lifting up the sails so that should and when the wind of the Holy Spirit of God begins to blow, we are ready to catch the wind of the movement of God. So let's read it. Acts chapter 1. 
In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And he's referring there, if you don't know this, to the gospel of Luke. Luke is writing Acts, and the first book he's talking about is the writing of the gospel of Luke. Then he says, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about these. Say it out loud if you're reading along. The what? The kingdom of God. That's very important. We're going to come back to it. Verse 4. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. There's a word we all love. Amen? Wait. For the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Let me stop right here for just a minute. We're going to read the rest, but stop right here for just a minute. Isn't it interesting that problems in the church are the same today as they've always been? It's an election year. You know what happens in the church in election year. Right? Just get on social media. It's embarrassing. I find it interesting that here's Jesus about to talk to them about the mission. And what do they want to talk about? Politics. Lord, is now the time that you're going to throw Rome out? We're tired of being under Roman rule. We're tired of the emperor. We're tired of being treated as slaves in our society. Is now the time that you're going to throw Rome out and let Israel be in charge of the government again. You know what Jesus said? That's none of your business. Let me read it to you. Look at verse 5. It's not for you to know. Excuse me, that's verse uh, 7. It's not for you to know. What is that in the Greek? That's none of your business. Listen to this. It's not for you to know times or seasons. Get this, that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Put that in your theological cereal bowl and eat that for a little bit. Rome was a wicked dictatorship that was burning Christians at the stake placing them on poles while they're burned alive to light the streets of the city of Rome as entertainment. They were throwing Christians in the arena to the lions to be devoured for sport for others to make money while betting on how long they would survive in the arena. And the Jews said, hey, now's the time. Let's throw them out so that we can get in control of the government. Jesus said, that's not the play here. He said, you want to talk about political empires? I want to talk to you about a kingdom. And a mission that is so much bigger than politics. Here's what's dangerous for us in the church in America. If we're not careful, we're allowing syncretism to take place. Here's what that means. We're allowing our faith to be so interwoven on both the left and the right side of the aisle. We're allowing our faith to be interwoven with our political ideology to the point that we don't know where one stops and the other starts. And I'm here to tell you that the gospel of the kingdom transcends our political ideology. We can amen that, we can clap that, let's remember that come November. When you freaking out online over your guy or gal didn't win or lose, remember, God is still on the throne. Our Father has fixed this by His own authority, and His kingdom is advancing to every corner of the globe. Amen? 
Not for you to know times are epics, but then he said, look at verse 8. Here's what I want to talk to you about. Here's the real mission. The answer is not riding in on an elephant or a donkey. The real answer is in the hope of the gospel. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he said, when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered the upper room, they, they, or excuse me, when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now, obviously that's a long passage of scripture. Total transparency. We could verse by verse walk through those 14 verses over the next six weeks to try to unpack everything that's in there. What I want to do is try to, from a 30,000 foot view, extract these four characteristics. And here's the first one. They had a faith that produced obedience. Let me say it another way. They trusted God and they did what God said. Now, I know that sounds simple, but in the church day that we live in today, that's pretty radical. Like, we want to have think tanks and strategy sessions and blue sky meetings and whiteboard discussions and come up with all kinds of strategies and plans. The early church just said, what he say? That's what we're going to do. You say, where do you see that in the text? Well, notice what it said to him in verse 4. In verse 4, he said, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait. What city did he tell them to go to? Say it out loud. Jerusalem. Thank you, somebody up there. That's awesome. Some kids up there just leaned in. Where did he say to go? Jerusalem. Now, we read that and don't think anything about it. But you've got to remember what Jerusalem was to them. Jerusalem was the scene of the crime. You see, 40 days earlier, the whole city of Jerusalem had lined the streets and given their opinion of Jesus. They said, here's what we think about Jesus. They lined the streets 40 days earlier, and here's what they screamed. Crucify him. We don't want your Jesus. We don't want your church. We don't want your teaching. Put him to death. And Jesus said, here's the plan. We're going to start our new church in Jerusalem. And here's the crazy part. They did it. Now that tells me some stuff about them. Number one, they didn't make their decisions based on their feelings. I promise you, Jerusalem didn't feel good to anybody in the group. When he said Jerusalem, every one of their hearts sank. You know what they thought? If they'll kill Jesus, what are they going to do to us? What are they going to do to our families? What does this mean? to if, if God in the flesh gets put to death on a cross, they were terrified about Jerusalem. They didn't make their decisions based on their feelings. Jerusalem didn't feel good. Number two, they didn't make their decisions based on their opinions. 
help us in a Baptist church. That means they didn't vote on it. Because if they had, let me tell you what one city wouldn't have passed the vote. Like if they'd taken index cards and passed them out and said, we'd like everybody to write down your top three cities where we're going to go start our new church and new movement. Let me tell you what one city wouldn't have been on anybody's card. Jerusalem. Well, I take that back. Good old smart Alex Simon Peter. On his card, he would have said, I don't care where we go as long as it's not Jerusalem. They didn't make their decisions based on their circumstances. You ever heard this spiritual nugget before? We use it as an excuse all the time. Well, God closed the door. You know what Jerusalem screamed? Closed door. Like, you did not have to do a demographic study of the, of the neighborhoods surrounding Jerusalem to find out whether or not they'd be open to a new church starting in their community. They literally nailed the door shut. And yet Jesus said, here's the plan. We're going to go to Jerusalem. And they went to Jerusalem. They didn't pro and con the decision. Because if they had, they wouldn't have made it. <laughs> they didn't vote on it. And I think therein is the first reason why we're not seeing God move in the church in North America like we're seeing God move in other parts of the world right now. You see, we got all our buildings and our budgets and our professional staffs and our strategies and our programs and we have our think tanks and our strategy sessions. We got so many ways we know how to do church that we've lost the ability to simply sit at the feet of the Father and listen for His voice and then do what He says. Because sometimes what He said doesn't make sense on paper. Sometimes what He calls us to doesn't add up on the finance sheet. They simply listen to His voice. You know the verse in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing by the what? Word of Christ, right? Word of God. Faith comes by what? You know what that means. It's not faith until you hear God. You ever heard anybody say, well, I'm not real sure what God wants me to do, so I'm just going to step out and... That's not faith. That's presumption on God. That's a very dangerous way to live your life and lead your family. Faith waits at the feet of the Father. And if that means we wait six months or 60 years, we wait at the feet of the Father. And then when God speaks, whether it makes sense or it doesn't make sense, we simply say yes. Listen, when God called my family to Las Vegas, you couldn't have picked the city further off our radar. Like, he might as well have said Timbuktu. I didn't know where Las Vegas was. I'm born and raised in Alabama. You're from Alabama. You don't go to Las Vegas. If you do, you don't tell anybody. Like where I'm from, they don't think Las Vegas is hell, but they think you can smell it from there. Like it's close. When God spoke to us and we knew Las Vegas where we were supposed to go, we started telling friends and family, they're like, man, you crazy. Who wants to raise their kids in Vegas? But if we're going to see God move, we've got to have a faith that says, Lord, yes. And here's the deal. Lord and yes are the only two words that go together. There's no Lord maybe. If it adds up on paper, if I feel like it's the right thing to do, if it's convenient, if it doesn't cost me too much. 
Second thing they had, not only a faith that produced obedience, secondly, they had a passion that produced unity. I want to prove to you the first church in Jerusalem was not a Baptist church. All right, you ready for this? And listen, I say this, you got to understand, I'm not picking on Baptists. I've been Baptist longer than I've been Christian. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But I'm going to prove it's not a Baptist church. Verse 14, all these with one accord. There it is right there. That doesn't mean they're all riding around Jerusalem in a Honda. Here's what that means. That means some of you are going to get that later at lunch and be like, oh, that's what he means. <laughs> one accord means one mind, one heart, one passion. Here's what it says about the church. The whole church, 20,000 of them from all different cultures, stratas of society, backgrounds, political parties. I mean, think about this. Matthew the tax collector, Simon the zealot. You know what those were? Political extremes in the first century. The zealots wanted to overthrow Rome with violence as much as we had to do. The tax collectors were Jews that went into business with Rome to extort money from their own countrymen. You had political extremes all wrapped up in the same movement here by Jesus. I love that. Had some interesting campfire conversations, I'm sure. But the whole church was on the same page. I've never been to a Baptist church like that. Pastor, you saying we don't have passion? No, no, no. We got passion. The problem is one person's passionate about this political party. One person's passionate about this particular ministry. Somebody else is passionate about this particular demographic of society. And so rather than our passion uniting us, our passion divides us. If you don't believe me, just get on Christian social media. If there is such a thing. What was it that wrapped their hearts together? you got to go back to the beginning of the chapter, verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the, we said earlier, speaking about the what? The kingdom of God. Now, don't miss the context here. This is the last 40 days Jesus is alive on planet Earth. It's after his resurrection before his ascension. It's his last 40 days physically present on planet earth. So for 40 days, Jesus makes appearances to his disciples, sometimes in groups of one or two, sometimes in groups of a couple of hundred. But for 40 days, Jesus, his last 40 days on planet earth is appearing to his disciples. And the Bible says for 40 days, he only talked about one thing. It was like a broken record. Every time he got with disciples, kingdom of God, 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 kingdom of God. It's almost as if he said, if you forget everything else I've taught you in three and a half years of public ministry, don't forget this. It's all about the kingdom of God. And here's the tragedy. Most of us in the American church, we don't even know what the kingdom of God is. If we have any context for it at all, we think, oh, the kingdom, that's heaven out there somewhere. No, 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 that's not what the kingdom, that's, that's the ultimate reality of the kingdom. Did you know that the kingdom of God is referenced 100 times in 16 different books of the New Testament? I would submit to you if something's in the Bible once, it's important, amen? If it makes it 100 times in two-thirds of the books of the New Testament, 
Let me give you the most famous kingdom of God reference in the Bible. Matthew 6.33. Anybody know that one? Who, yeah. Who, who quotes that? Who's that? Who's Matthew 6.33? Who said that? Jesus. What did he say? Seek ye what? First. Now, seek ye first the kingdom of God. He wasn't suggesting that we prayerfully put the kingdom of God in our top 10 list as an imperative He's commanding us that the kingdom of God is to be that in which everything in our life centers in and revolves around. The kingdom is why we woke up today. The kingdom is why we do our jobs today. The kingdom is why we raise our kids today. Everything is about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, for sake of time, let me give you a definition. Here's the way I define the kingdom of God. It's God's sovereign activity in the world resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. I'll say it again. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign activity in the world, resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. The kingdom of God is the big picture of what God is doing all over the world. You do know that as we sit here this morning in this comfortable auditorium, God is alive and at work all over the world. If you believe that, say amen. Did you know it's even better than that? Did you know that we're living in the greatest days in the history of Christianity to be alive? Did you know that there are more people coming to faith in Jesus today on a daily basis around the world than at any other single time in human history? You did not hear what I just said. <laughs> or you would have said something, so I'm going to say it again and give you another shot. We are living in the greatest days in the history of Christianity to be alive. There are more people coming to faith in Jesus today around the world on a daily basis than at any other moment in human history. And here's what that means. God birthed your church for such a time as this. Not so you could have the most dynamic worship service in Houston. Not so you could have the best kids or worship ministry. God birthed your church to leverage it all for the sake of the expansion of the kingdom of God to cities and nations all over the world. Let me give you, let me give you a word of discouragement this morning. Here's a word of discouragement. Houston's first. This great church is one day going to die. How dare you? Who does this guy think he is coming in here from Vegas? <laughs> why would you say that? Here's why I'm saying that. All churches do. All churches have a life cycle. They're born, they live, they die. The local church is temporary. If you don't believe me, go visit any church that got a book deal in the New Testament. <laughs> Corinth, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Philippi. What were they in the first century? Thriving epicenters of God's activity, expanding his kingdom locally and globally. What are they today? A pile of rocks in the Middle East. The church is temporary. If we put all of our, this is why it's so tragic. In the church in America, we've taken the mission of God, made it a department in the church called missions. Man, we need to crucify the S. There's no missions. There's just the mission. The church is born for the mission. 
The only reason we exist is for the mission. If we put all our eggs in the basket of the church, we're investing in that which is temporary. But I'm here to tell you the kingdom of God is alive and well. And if we leverage our churches for the expansion of the kingdom locally and globally, now we're investing in that which is eternal. And the early church wrapped their hearts around it. And that passion united them. And in our churches today, we argue about styles of music and colors of carpet. and Whether you wear suits and ties or shorts and flip-flops. Here's what the early church said, we don't care. We're just going to seek first the kingdom of God. That's what matters. Number three, we got to hurry. You're not listening fast enough. They had a desperation that produced prayer. How many of you believe that God has a sense of humor? If you believe God has a sense of humor, let me see your hand. If you don't believe that, you're wrong. Where do you think we got ours from? We're made in the image of God. Part of the Imago Dei is a sense of humor. As a matter of fact, did you know that there are funny verses in the Bible? I read some of the funniest verses in the Bible this morning, and you've been reading it so long as a Christian, you missed the joke. So I'm going to read it again and let you hear it. Look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took them out of their sight. I don't hear nobody laughing yet. You didn't get it. What did he say? And when he had said these things, what are the things he just said? Verse 8. He just said, okay, here's the plan. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. All right, so I'm going to get you to classroom participation time. Everybody kind of lean forward in your chair. Just lean forward for a minute. So here's what Jesus did. He got him up on a hillside. He said, everybody lean in. Here's the plan. We're going to start in Jerusalem where they hate you. Stay lean in. <laughs> then we're going to go to Judea and Samaria where you hate them. See, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They would walk all the way around the region to not have to pass through Samaria. They called them dogs. So Jesus said, here's the plan. We're going to start where they hate you. Then we're going to go where you hate them. Then we're going to go to the remotest part of the earth. What is that? Places in the world that you don't know where they are and you don't know how to get there. So here's the plan. We're going to start where they hate you. Then we're going to go where you hate them. Then we're going to go places you don't know exist and you don't know how to get there. And then the Bible says, he starts floating. <laughs> and when he had said these things, he was lifted up. What does that mean? He's floating. Like he drops this bomb, he drops this grenade, and then, ooh, and I'm not talking like Las Vegas levitation act. I mean, gone. A cloud received him. We read that like we see that happen every day. Did, did somebody write down what he just said? Hey, 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 you think he's coming back? And I believe if what happened next in the text hadn't happened, you'd have found 120 skeletons on that hillside with their jaws wide open. They'd have all died right there. You know what happens next? You ain't going to believe it. Jesus gets to heaven, looks down, sees them standing there looking up into heaven. He says to two angels, will you go down there and tell him to move along? 
You say, you're making that up. Look at verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven, what's that look like? Look what it says. Two men stood by them in white clothing. And here's what they said. Men of Galilee, what are you doing standing here? Looking up into heaven. And everything changed with the next sentence. This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you watched him go. And as soon as they heard it, they ran down off the Mount of Olives. They ran through the Kidron Valley up into Jerusalem. They ran up into the upper room. They slammed the door and they pulled out a whiteboard and began to discuss demographic strategies where they could meet the felt needs at their community so they could build bridges into the lives of others so the gospel could walk. Is that not what your Bible says they did? No, what'd they do? Here's what they did. They got in that upper room and they got down on their face before God. And they began to beg God because they knew if God's not God right now, we're sunk. These people hate us. They want to kill us. What we've been tasked to do is impossible. They don't want to hear our message. They don't want to hear about our Savior. Oh God, if you don't do this. And they waited before God in desperate prayer until God showed up and did what only God could do. You know why we're not seeing God move in North America? You know what the early church was known for? Prayer in the Word. Acts 6.4, we'll devote ourselves to prayer in the Word. What are we known for? Music in the Word. I ain't nothing wrong with music. I love music. I love to sing. My, I've got three of my family members involved in worship ministries. Listen, the anchor of the New Testament church was they prayed together. 26 times in 28 chapters in the book of Acts, you find the church praying together. And when they prayed together, God moved in power. You know why they prayed? Because they were desperate. They didn't pray because it was prayer meeting time. They prayed because they needed God. You know the problem with us today? We ain't desperate. We can do church for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks whether God ever shows up or not. What have we done to prayer in the local church? Here's what we've done to it. We've relegated prayer to moments of transition when we move the band on and off the stage. We don't pray to pray anymore. We just pray to change the set while nobody's looking. I'm not saying it's wrong to move stuff while we pray. I'm saying it's wrong to just pray to move stuff. What happened to just praying because it's time to pray? I got so convicted about this at our church in Las Vegas in 2015, we started carving out eight to 10 minutes in every public service. My last weekend there, we had over 4,000 people in our worship service. We carve out eight to 10 minutes. We lead the whole church in corporate prayer together through a text of scripture. People say, you can't do that. Church of 4,000 people, man, what about all the lost people who come to your church? Let me tell you what I found out. When lost people come to a church service, they actually expect us to talk to God. Not only that, most of them showed up at church hoping we'd show them how they could talk to God. And when all we do is let a paid professional with a microphone use eloquent words to talk to God on stage, we communicate to a congregation that there's a great chasm between God and your ability to communicate to Him. But when we open a text of Scripture and we allow the Word become the centerpiece of a conversation we have with the Father, we invite the whole church in to pray. Listen, when we seek God in prayer, we experience God in power. 
I got to Las Vegas in 2000. My first week on the field, I got a telephone call from a lady named Letty Peralta. Letty's from the Philippines. Letty said, Pastor, can I tell you a story? I said, Letty, I don't know anybody in Las Vegas. You can tell me any story you want to tell me. Here's what she told me. She said, I'm from the Philippines, moved to Hong Kong to make money for my family that was very poor. While living in Hong Kong, met an American family, moved in with them, became the caretaker of their home. She said, that family became my extended family, so much so when that family moved back to America, I moved with them. She said, we settled north of Atlanta, Georgia, in a suburb called Woodstock, Georgia. She said, I visited a church called the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia. I heard the gospel and the kingdom of God like I'd never heard it before, but then my family got relocated back to Vegas. She said, I've lived in Las Vegas for a year and a half. And I've been praying that the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia would start a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Would you tell me who sent you here? Honest to God. Two weeks earlier, my family loaded everything we owned in a green Dodge minivan in the parking lot of the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, being sent by that church to Las Vegas, Nevada to plant a church. And none of us knew Letty Peralta existed on planet Earth. Over 20 years, listen, over 20 years, we had the privilege of baptizing 5,000 new believers into that fellowship. We had the privilege of starting 80 churches out of our church. We sent hundreds of people out of our church to plant churches up and down the western United States. We have missionaries serving as career missionaries on the field on four different continents who've come to Christ in Las Vegas, now been sent overseas. I get a call a month from a church planter. Man, how does a white dude from Alabama from a church in Georgia, wind up planting a multi-ethnic church that looks like heaven working all over the world in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I'm not trying to be super spiritual. I'm not trying to be humble. I'm trying to be honest. One lady from the Philippines. For a year and a half, grabbed a hold of the altar of God and did not let go. Call it a preaching conference. We'll pack it out. Call it a concert. We'll pack it out. Call it a prayer meeting. Plenty of seats, man. What's it going to take for us to get desperate? You know what Jesus said? Apart from me, you can do what? You know the problem? We think he said, apart from me, you can't do big things. Because let it be a big thing, we get desperate. Let it be an everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill thing. We think we got that. Here's the last thing they had. I'm done. They had the spirit that produced power. We can debate all day long what happened in Acts chapter 2. Whole denominations have been formed around the differences of what they believe in Acts chapter 2. Here's one thing we can't deny. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit of God fell on His church like we'd never seen before. And I'm telling you, what we need today is a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. But we will not be prepared to catch the wind of the Spirit if we don't have a faith that produces obedience, a passion that produces unity, and a desperation that leads us to seek God in prayer. Oh, may God do it again. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you have your way in the service today, God, for your glory. In just a moment, as you sit quietly before the Lord in prayer, you're going to have decision time counselors here at the front. They're going to join me here. Your, your band's going to come and lead in a song of worship. But it's not just a song of worship. It's a song of response. What is God saying to you today? You began by praying and asking God to speak to you. What is He saying to you today? If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, 
Listen, my prayer for you today is that you will come to one of these decision time counselors and say, I need Jesus. And they'll have somebody show you from the Bible how you can begin today a personal relationship with God. You can leave here with your life changed. It happened for me as a freshman in college. I was 18 years old, came to know Christ as my Lord and Savior, radically changed my life. You can have that today. Just come to one of these counselors and say, hey, I need Jesus. And they'll show you how you can follow Jesus. For others, I believe there are many already in this room that are followers of Jesus. Do you have a faith that produces obedience? Is your yes on the table? Maybe what needs to happen this morning, maybe you need to turn your seat into an altar or you just come up here to this altar here at the front and just kneel and say, Lord, yes. You say, what's the question? I don't know. But Lord, the only answer is yes. Do you have a passion that produces unity? Are you focused on so many smaller things than the kingdom that it's dividing you from brothers and sisters in Christ rather than seeking first the kingdom of God? Do you have a desperation that produces prayer? Man, maybe a lot of us need to come this morning, get in one of these kneeling benches, get in this altar, maybe turn your seat into an altar, get your family, just begin to beg God to move like you hadn't begged God to move in a long time. Holy Spirit of God, have your way in this moment as we respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church. We invite you to worship with us at one of our four locations, at The Loop, Cypress, Downtown, or Siena. Follow us on social media or visit us online at houstonsfirst.org.